0: Numbers 11:24 And Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and set them round about the tabernacle and the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him and took the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders and it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them they prophesied and did not cease But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them, and they were of them that were written, but went not out into the tabernacle, and they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, answered and said, My Lord, Moses, forbid them. And Moses said unto him, Envyest thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. This is Moses' wish. It's a pastor's dream come true. You may be seated. The message that I want to share with you tonight, uh, I have preached here before of September 9, 2001. And this is one of those messages that the Lord gave me, not just for Atlanta West, but to try to share a lot of places. And I have preached or taught this in at least six different districts, at camp meetings, men's conferences, and places like that. I say that to tell you that what I'm going to talk about again tonight Is not just a sermon, it is a principle. It's a concept, I believe, of the church that we tried to implement here for 22 years. But I believe we have more territory to take, more ground to cover, more work to be done. And last Wednesday night, at the very end of my message on our model for ministry, while I was standing here praying, the Lord just impressed me that I needed to talk about this Tonight, And I just wrote it down and prayed it through in the last several days. So I wanted to give you a little background about this because there are some things that are part of the DNA of the church and the DNA of this church. It's our unique ministry fingerprint, but it shouldn't be unique to us. This should be uh, really the hallmark of apostolic churches, God's church everywhere. So to get to where Moses was, I've got to kind of share the story of pastors in North America. And it really goes like this. Through my life, you know, I'm a a saint's kid. But when I went into ministry in the last 39 years, you're around ministers here and there. And sometimes the burden of ministry and difficult situations preachers face, pastors face, you might hear them kind of say some things uh, a little negative about their experience in pastoring. I really don't feel that way. I thank God that He counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. And I have confidence that if God called me, He would keep me, that He would never call me to watch me fail, that He would be with me. So since 1978, I've been in the ministry. And in those 39 years, I've been involved in a lot of different things. If you add all the stuff up, it adds up to like 95 years of experience, but I'm not quite that old. But but I, I am a pastor, I'm not an apostle or a prophet, not an evangelist, I'm a pastor teacher. That's my calling. And I think if you poke me like I did today, I I bleed pastoral blood. But I want I want to make a point. So I'm not trying to give you my resume. Most of you know this. But I was a youth pastor, assistant pastor, Christian school principal, Bible college instructor, Bible college administrator, district youth official general youth official, four missions board member, 16 years, division of education board member, Bible college president, district superintendent, executive presbyter, 22 years this month, tomorrow, pastor of this church. So 95 years or so of experience jammed into 39 years. But I, I found this, that of all those different things that the Lord has allowed me to do, There's nothing like being a pastor. There's nothing as joyful, and there's probably nothing also stressful. So I'm not a whiner, I'm not complaining, but I do want to explain, because the whole point of this message is that it doesn't rest on the shoulders of one person, and if it does, it is a crushing weight that one man cannot bear. So just kind of bear with me while I get to that point. But I'll be pretty transparent and open that when you're a pastor, it is really a 24-7, 365 job. You can take a day off, but you're never really off the clock. You can plan a vacation, but you never know if you're really going to get to take that vacation. If you go on vacation, you're never 100% sure you're going to get to finish that vacation because you never know what's going to happen that will call you back home if you pastor. Sometimes it's impossible to get back home. And I have several examples Uh, We were at a family reunion in 2002 and someone in our church was critically ill. We came home I canceled uh, a little hunting trip with Justin for the funeral that week. That's just part of the way it goes. In 2003, my wife and I are on our way. I was going to speak at the Florida camp meeting. We're an hour and a half out of town. Ryan called my cell phone. He said, Dad, you've been gone an hour and a half and someone has already died. That's the inside the pastor's home, like when you go out of town, be careful, you know, if, it, if you're sick or you're not living right and I'm going out of town, I just want to tell you to repent, get right with God, <laughs> bad things happen. Now, well, I'm not naming names, some of you will figure these stories out, just on purpose, but I can name names in a good way. These are not bad people, these are wonderful people in our church who go through tough times. We stopped on the side of the road, she pulled through that, and uh, didn't pass away until two weeks later when we were on our 25th wedding anniversary trip uh, too far away to get back, and the family in our church was as understanding as anybody could be. I thought of a couple other stories in 2011, taking three days off to go to North Carolina to, to go on a little short turkey hunt with Wayne Huntley and Terry Pugh, and the first afternoon I was sitting there. It was real hot. Nothing was happening. I got a text and looked down, and somebody in our church passed away, I canceled the rest of my trip and came home. In 2015, sounds like a, like a repetitive story, right? Quit hunting, don't go out of town, whatever. But I really don't do that much, but over 22 years, it just is kind of ironic. And uh, I'll name this thing. Brother Floyd's here. Sister Floyd was very, very sick. And I was in Missouri hunting with my brother. And it was afternoon on a Friday. I just put up a tree stand. It was raining. I was sitting on a four-wheeler. And I was just miserable because I knew Sister Floyd was not going to live long. So I, sitting there, called, had good self-service, called Brother Townsend, said, How is Sister Floyd? I'm just not having a good time. I feel so worried for their family. And I'd already planned to fly home Saturday night. My wife and I were flying back on Sunday night. By the way, I paid for these tickets. It's a personal trip. And uh, we flew back to St. Louis. My truck was there. Vehicle was there. And Monday morning, we got a call that Sister Floyd had passed away. So we drove home, nine and a half hours were here, and we were able to, we were gonna dedicate Rhett, our grandson, to the Lord in Bentonville, and we were still able to do that the next weekend. And I wouldn't trade anything for being able to be with people in the valley of the shadow of death. It is one of the great honors, because who else gets to be with people when they walk through such dark places but a pastor or a Christian or a friend like that. So I'm only saying that to say, that that's just the life of a pastor or people that serve in ministry. And I am not saying that for sympathy, but that's why any man who tries to do this alone is not really doing this the way God designed. And that's why last Wednesday, I spoke on, or back on August 6, I spoke about the symphony of ministry, about multiple ministries. And then uh, the model for ministry last Wednesday night Uh, Exodus 18, the advice of Jethro to Moses and captains over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And I believe that the Lord has helped us here at our church to build team ministry. We have some amazing ministers on staff, leaders and volunteers. I would would say whatever church anywhere in the world uh, see what God has done here about tremendous people. But there are a lot of pastors that don't have that kind of support, and some of you are preacher's kids and preacher's family, and I've heard some amens from people who know from the inside of the parsonage, you grow up a PK, grew up a PK where I did not. Uh, I, I've read a lot of things about this, and because, because I'm at a place in life, I, I get invited to go preach to preachers, to talk to ministers, to encourage them, strengthen them, and try to help them. So that's why I've shared this message several times to encourage people in churches to step up and be spiritual and to hold up the hands of their pastor. And I've encouraged pastors to open their heart to help. Don't be the lone ranger. Don't do this alone. Remember last week, Jethro told Moses, this is too heavy for you alone. You're going to wear away and you're wearing out your people. It's not good for them. They're most important not good for you. When you die, we'll find another one, but this is not a good way to operate. So I've read a lot on burnout, of course, burnout in the ministry. Ministry Today magazine, 1,500 pastors a month quit the ministry in North America. Not UPC, but ministers. And a lot of them are burned out. There's a lot of statistics. There's a book called Pastors at Greater Risk by H.B. London. There's another book called Leading on Empty by Wayne Cordero. They quote quote the same statistics, that 50% of congregations are declining. I've read higher than that. 90% of pastors work more than they should a week. 80% say it affects their family negatively. 33% say it's a hazard to their families. 25% of pastor's wives say their husband's schedule is a conflict. 80% 80% say they have insufficient time with their spouse. I'm not going to let my wife say amen right now. She would. 75% report they've had stress-related events in their life at least once. 50% feel they're incapable, which you always do, because our sufficiency is of God. I understand how that works. You know why? 45% said they've experienced depression and burnout, needed to take a leave of absence. And they say that 70% of pastors have lower self-esteem now than when they started the ministry. Kind of makes you feel humble when you try to do this and you can't do it. And that the average congregation expects their pastor to juggle an average of 16 major tasks. So that's just part of the work of the ministry. And again, I'm not complaining. I could complain to somebody else. But I love what I do and I thank God for our team because we have learned something here But the reason I'm saying this is because I don't want you to forget or our church, all of us to forget what works at Atlanta West is a biblical model for ministry that I talked about last week and that Moses learned again in this story that I'm going to talk about. So I encourage people everywhere to support your pastor. Pray for your pastor every day. When we implemented Pastors Prayer Partners here probably 17 years ago, the clarity of me hearing from God shifted in a noticeable way because people were praying for me, and I hope you still do. And and just so you, in case you've forgotten this, it's not about me, I'm just a regular person. I'm no more important than anybody else as a person. But because of the way God works, leaders do make a difference. And the story of Moses, you know, holding up his hands, and as long as his hands are up, there's victory in the valley. When his hands fall down, real men and young men are killed in the valley because the leader is weak. God teaches a lesson of the importance of people like Aaron and her coming alongside Moses and holding his hands up. And even though he was not physically strong enough as a man, God accepted the help of other men to hold up his hands to give victory down in the valley. It's a spiritual principle That works and I cannot tell you how much I need your prayer and how much I depend on the help of other people and I know that I have to do my own praying. So last Wednesday I spoke about Exodus 18 which was the organization that Jethro encouraged Moses to implement where small matters would be dealt with by other people than Moses, that everything would not come directly to Moses. In fact, I believe when Jesus in Matthew 18 told us how to work out personal uh, conflict, he, He did it like this. If you have a problem between you and another person, you go to them alone. Don't post a prayer request on Facebook and let everybody know that you've got a problem with somebody else. You go to them alone, and you try to work it out. And if you can't work it out, then you go to them with two or three witnesses. And those witnesses may not be on your side. Hopefully, they're going to clarify, and they may point out that this was a misunderstanding. Or they may find out that you are the problem. Or that the other person is the problem. In the context of Matthew 18, the other person is kind of viewed as the problem. But now you have two or three witnesses that are going to help you, mature Christians, work this conflict out. And then Jesus said, if they will not hear those two or three witnesses, then you take it to the church. But in most churches, anytime person A has a problem with person B, They go straight to the pastor, straight to the church, straight out of the way Jesus asked for us to solve problems according to the Bible. A lot of things would be resolved at a lower level if we would trust the Bible and do it the way Jesus taught us to do. You can clap for that. Just Jesus, not me. So, Moses, Numbers chapter 11. He's trying to leave the children of Israel. they are gone from Egypt to the promised land. They don't have anything to eat but stuff that comes straight out of heaven. Wouldn't that be terrible? Every day it's just all over the ground, all you want. The day before the Sabbath there's enough to last two days. It doesn't last for two days except that one time a week. And every day just falls out of heaven... God humbles them, where he, they're dependent on Him every day. I believe that's what Deuteronomy 8 is talking about. I humbled you, fed you with manna, and I tested you so that I could, you know, I proved you so that I could do you good at your latter end. So He gives a manna every day. But then there's a group that's in Israel. Numbers eleven four, if you want to follow the bouncing ball. There is a mixed multitude that was among them that fell A lusting, And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We're carnivores. We need meat. And the mixed multitude, the word is rabble, maybe mixed race. They were not of Israel, but they went with Israel. They're the source of the beginning of this conflict of complaining. But then they're infectious and they get other people to murmur. All we've got is stuff that comes straight out of heaven and we're tired of it. We want meat. So everybody's all stirred up. And then verse 5. We remember the good old days. Now last time I checked, they were slaves in Egypt. And they cried by reason of their affliction. And the Lord heard their groanings. They were miserable in Egypt. You ever notice how people rewrite their past when they're trying to justify present behavior? They want to get a divorce, they say, I never loved him or her. They interpret their past to condone the decision they want to make in the present. They say, we remember how it was in Egypt. Man, back there, we freely, you were not free, you were slaves. We freely ate cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic, and perhaps they did eat that, but the word freely is an interesting word. And then they said, verse 6, But now our soul is dried away. There's nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. Stuff that falls straight out of heaven every day. I, I, just be careful. No, honestly, people don't say this here. If they do, it doesn't get back to me. If they did say this, they would be lying. People in churches sometimes say, "You know, I'm not being fed." That's possible, but usually it's because you've had too much to eat and you're not giving anything away, so you're just kind of spiritually spoiled. You know, if a sponge is saturated, it cannot absorb any more until it is squeezed out. And there's a lot of people sitting on church pews. Not many here, but some that they just—they're the reason they're. They're not really receiving more is because they're never squeezing anything out in ministry. They're not giving anything away and they're, they're saturated. I'm, I'm not being fed. The Bible said to the hungry man, every bitter thing is sweet. I heard an elder say one time, he said, I've never heard a sermon that I didn't get something out of. He said, there have been a few close calls. but I've always gotten something. I mean, if it's the Bible, then you should be able to find a takeaway, right? So I just want to tell you, people who are getting manna every day are saying, our soul is dried away. We're just not being fed. And again, I don't hear that here. And if somebody said it, they would be lying because... Every week, whoever's in this pulpit is prepared and prayed, and the Word of God is preached and taught. So, verses 7, 7 to 9. I, I appreciate the amen, but I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm just stating a fact. And the manna man, he tells us what it was. Coriander seed, the color, color of bedulum, like a pale yellow resin. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills, and beat it in a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of fresh oil. Wow, probably olive oil there. And when the dew fell upon the camp at night, the manna fell upon it. So, that's what this was. This is what they were eating, and their soul is dried away. And they want to go back to Egypt. Which is really a reinvention of what was really there. Verse 10. Well, Moses heard the people weep throughout their, through their families, every man in the door of his tent, We have, a, we, have a, we have a speaker that is possessed, and we fixed it, and it, we're working on a solution, but it does this at weird times. And it's that speaker somewhere up there. It's just testing our attention span, you know. Our focus. Can you focus? Focus. Everybody focus. Every man in the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, Moses also was displeased. Now, the Lord and Moses got mad at different times. Remember the time the Lord is angry. He wants to destroy all of Israel. He says kind of essentially, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to kill all of them and I'm going to start over with you. And Moses intercedes for them. He stands in the way and says, Lord, if you're going to kill them, take me out too. And there's times Moses was mad and God was merciful. But in this particular example of Numbers 11.10, God and Moses are both mad at the same time, which is trouble. So, you know, what am I going to do? Moses starts griping. This is the context of what I said in my introductory comments. Verse 11. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? Why did you give me this job? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight? When you called me at that burning bush, you know, this was supposed to be a wonderful call of God, and now this is not much fun at all. Now it feels like instead of favor, I'm in disfavor. Like this is the worst job in the world. And you're laying the burden of all this people on me. When translations ask, why are you treating me so harshly? Do I deserve the burden of all these people? Verse 12. Moses says, if I conceived all this people, have I begotten them that thou shouldest say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom as a nursing father. Beareth the sucking child into the land which thou swearest unto their fathers. Am I supposed to carry 600,000 men and all these women and children like on my shoulder to heaven? Don't they want to go to Canaan land too? I mean, Moses is kind of feeling sorry for himself. He needs to read this book on burnout and leading on empty. He needs to go see some, get some counseling Moses is stressed out, right? And then Moses says in verse 13. I'm going to paraphrase what you see on the screen. Where am I going to get enough food for all these people? They weep unto me saying, give us flesh that we may eat. We don't like like what we're being fed. Give us something better, right? Like preach a deep sermon and give us more. Tickle our ears. You know, the Bible said, Paul said, the time will come and they will not endure sound doctrine, but will have itching ears and they will heap to themselves teachers. They'll just want to hear stuff to make them feel good, pat them on the back, not nothing convicting, nothing that calls them into obedience to the commands of Christ. There are 50 or so of them. Just, you know... Just make me feel good when I go to church. So Moses is feeling all of this, the demands of the people, and he feels a strong sense of his inability. He says, Lord, I am not able to bear all this people alone, for it is too heavy for me. Amen. You, Moses, are right. I'm not able. I can't carry it. I can't do it alone. It's too heavy. I've thought about the words that Moses says here. He recognizes his inability. He knows the load is heavier than he's able to carry as a man. He's feeling alone. He can't do it. So verse 15. I should have put 14 on the screen. Sorry, I didn't. He says, Lord, if this is what you're going to do with me, kill me. I've got a solution to the whole problem. If this is the job you want me to do, if you want me to be... And I'm I'm using an analogy. If you want me to be the pastor of all these people, if you want me to be their prophet, if you want me to be the, if if I'm the guy, if this is what you want me to do, then I've got a solution to this problem right now. Kill me. It's too heavy. I can't do it. I'm alone. If I, he said, if I found favor in your sight, if you love me, kill me. Right? Everybody see that? I'm not making this up. So, how does Moses get in this situation? I really believe that Exodus 18, last Wednesday, and Numbers 11 are lessons for all of us. It prepares us for what God will do in His church. But it shows an example of what happens when a leader leads alone. He cannot ever do it. It's like leadership 101. A one man show is a very small show. But when God calls somebody, typically, you know, I work around a lot of ministers and they're type A, strong personalities. They're leaders. They're leaders. You don't want somebody leading who is not a leader. You don't shouldn't have to wind them up every day if they're going to lead. They should be strong and they should have, you know, some amount of confidence and can't back into what you do every day. And the Lord gives an answer in verse 16. The Lord says to Moses, Gather unto me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom thou knowest to be the elders of the people, and officers over them. They're already recognized. We know who to find. We're going to find people who are already recognized leaders among your people. Bring them to me in the tabernacle of congregation, that they may stand there with you. Now I love that. Because Moses, you've been alone. You're feeling alone. You want me to kill you. I'm not finished with you yet. I'm not going to kill you, but I'm going to help you. So go get 70 trusted men. Bring them and surround the tabernacle and stand there. Now... I want to point out a couple of things, and if I was talking to ministers, I would say that you never put a person in a position of responsibility who you cannot trust and who has not proven themselves. Character is the number one trait for anybody being a leader. I know some pastors who have the philosophy that you just get people involved, and if they will get involved, then they will become faithful. But Paul says it the opposite way. He tells Timothy, the things that you've seen and heard of me commit to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. We believe in involving new people, but we don't put people in responsible positions because the Bible said that confidence in an unfaithful man is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. So you shouldn't put responsibility on someone who you can't trust and hasn't proven themselves and Jesus said, if you can't be faithful over little things, nobody's going to trust you with big things. So you ought to be willing to serve in small places, even if you're a big shot. When a a person is position-oriented, they are polar opposite of the Spirit of Jesus, who came as a servant, not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom—that was the spirit of Jesus. I remember back in Jackson, a guy came to Brother Kraft one time. He said, "Brother Kraft, I, I want to be involved in ministry and I want to lead some groups. I want to be over some groups." And Brother Kraft said, "Well, who do you think is going to get those groups? I mean, groups are made up of people. You've got to love. You've got to be willing to go work with people. I'm not going to just." put you over groups. What is that? That's not the way we lead in church ministry. Verse 17. The Lord says, I will come down and talk with you there. I'll take the spirit which is upon thee and I will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee that thou bear it not thyself alone. Is this like an incredible scripture in the Bible? If you're a leader, it's a really awesome scripture to think that God knows our humanity, limitations, weaknesses, and frailty, and He doesn't ask you to lead alone. Some people choose to lead alone, but God doesn't call us to lead alone. But the Lord said, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm I'm not going to come down there at the tabernacle and bring a spirit from a thousand miles away and put it on these 70 men. This is a spiritual principle. I'm going to take the same spirit that is in you and I'm going to multiply it and I'm going to put it on or in them. It's not a different vision. It's not a different anointing. It's an extension of your calling, your anointing, and I'm going to put that same thing in them. They're going to have your same spirit. Okay? Not a different spirit. So I want to explain a couple things that I believe in a church, there can be unlimited ministries, but one vision. One vision. And it's not, just so you'll know, it's not because it's me standing here. I was an assistant youth pastor. 15 years I served somebody else. I get this from the other side, you know, from like my pastoral staff that put up with me and work with me and, you know, listen to me and follow me and help me. Sometimes they save me from myself. So I'm not standing up here like the big, you know, head honcho guy. This is a principle. And I'm not always the guy in charge. I serve in places where I'm not in charge. And that's fine. One vision. And and I remember hearing Brother Chester Wright teach. It was on a cassette tape. I was driving with our family all night to go on vacation just, I don't know, 15 years ago. And he talked about people who relocate. And he said, but they never get under the anointing of that pastor. If you ever move away from here, please don't tell that new pastor. Well, in Atlanta, Brother Johns does it like this. They don't really want to hear that. They're not going to listen to you and you've created resistance instead of receptivity, you know. But, but we have a lot of people here and I'm not, I'm very transparent, okay. I'm not addressing a problem at Atlanta West that I know of. Sometimes I am and I don't even know I am. I'm teaching a Bible lesson. But when you, when you become part of this church, you can't be under brother so-and-so somewhere else because that's not how God works. If you come here, I've got to be under submission to God and you have to be under the anointing and the vision of this church. We don't have two visions or five visions or ten visions and we have ministries and amazing people in leadership. They're not weak. They're not yes men or yes ladies. They are people who have a say in what we do. That's how we lead here. We lead with multiple input of ministries. But I'm talking now about anointing. You're not going to get... An anointing that is outside of the flow of anointing through the ministry that exists. God does not work like that. And I've been saying recently that the maverick spirit is aligned to the spirit of the devil, not the spirit of Jesus. And anybody who just kind of feels like they've got to be outside the system, work against the system, criticize the system... They're they're a problem even if the system is flawed and the system is always flawed because people are in that system. And it tests our spirit a lot. You know, I have a pretty strong personality. I'm not a genius, but I'm not stupid. If I work in an organization, I don't always agree with every decision or resolution or stuff that is done. I don't always agree with that. But if because I disagree, if I cannot submit and be cooperative, then that now becomes a spiritual problem for me. Even if the issue is wrong. If you don't really believe that, go read about Paul taking a Jewish vow in Acts 21, and you'll find the great apostle Paul submitted to authority in his life. Even when I believe, Daryl Johns believes they were wrong. And it turned out bad, poorly. But it was the ultimate will of God. So, everybody needs to be under authority. And you've heard me say it before, the most dangerous person in the world is a person who is not under authority. And I mean that for me, and I mean that for you. And if you and I agree, we agree. If we don't agree, and you submit then that's a biblical principle. When I don't agree with my leaders and I submit, then I now have a work of the Holy Spirit in my life to teach me to be more like Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, humbled Himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, He will exalt you in due season. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. But if you don't submit, you cannot resist. Spiritual principle. Well, Moses and God have this conversation and he's supposed to bring all the people to the tent of meeting and so they do that. And the Lord tells Moses he's going to give them food to eat. And he says, okay, God, wait a second. If you were to kill all the livestock, that's not enough. there are 600,000 men. If you were to take all the fish in the sea, Moses says that, that's not enough. And God says, numbers 11:23, "Moses, is my hand become short? Is it? Do you think that my hand shrivelled up that I can't provide that the hand of God cannot do its work? Watch this. Now, this is not a part of my message tonight. But he sends quail from the sea, and he says, you're not going to eat it for 10 or 20, but you're going to eat this quail for a whole month until it runs out your nostrils. That's in the Bible. You don't think I can provide? Watch this. Quail, two cubits high. A yard deep quail everywhere Of course, while they they went excessive and while the flesh was in their teeth, God got angry with them and all of that. That's in this same chapter. But verse 24. And Moses went out, told the people the words of the Lord, and gathered the seventy men of the elders of the people, set them round about the tabernacle, And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him and took the Spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. Now the Lord took that Spirit. He he multiplied it. He didn't divide it. So I say to leaders, you're not going to lose anything when you share authority and you share anointing. You divide responsibility and you multiply anointing. Don't be afraid to let God anoint the people in your church. See? <laughs> so there's this powerful thing that happens, right? Pastor Moses doesn't lose anything. Still walks with God, talks to God face to face as a man does his friend. But now he's got 70 other men who have anointing on their lives. They've got part of what Moses has, which is pretty amazing. And they're prophesying, thus saith the Lord this, and thus saith the Lord that. And it's just amazing what God is doing. But what Moses doesn't know, he thinks there's 70 men, but there's two guys who are missing. One is named Eldad, one is named Edad, and they were out in the camp. They didn't come to the tent of meeting where this anointing is given. But somewhere out there at home, I don't know if their sundial was off or they were doing stuff around the tent that their wife had them do and and they just didn't get done in time and they, they were late for church. Whatever happened, they're not there. But they're not bad guys. They just missed church that day, right? They're invited, they're on the list, 68 men. They're not there. But the Spirit comes on them, I think for a reason, we're learning something, right, from this passage, and they're prophesying out in the camp. There's a young man out in the camp and he hears Eldad and Medad prophesying and he goes running to where Moses is and Joshua's standing there and, and the young man tells Moses that Eldad and me, Dad, are out prophesying in the camp. This is unauthorized prophesying, not at church. Because everybody knows you can only be spiritual at church. Right. Joshua hears this, and he says, "My Lord, Moses, forbid them. Stop this. This is out of control. Now, I've thought a lot about what was going on in this this young man's mind and Joshua's mind. One of the things I think is that they liked it when Moses was spiritual and they didn't have to be. Moses can go up and talk to God and we can dance naked around a golden calf. Moses has to pray and fast and Walk with God, but we get to be carnal and come to church and have Moses, you know, put us on his shoulders, carry us another step toward the promised land. That's how Moses felt, remember? And maybe that's how this young man perceived the church should really be. Only Moses can pray for the sick. Only Moses can see miracles. Only Moses can be like that. So whatever's going on in their mind, Eldad dad and me, dad, prophesying out in the camp, Young man Joshua, who's successor to Moses, he's telling Moses, stop it, tell them to quit. We can't have this going on. This is not decently and in an order. This is wildfire. Right? You've heard all those things if you've been around church a long time. Verse 28, forbid them. I love what Moses. Oh, well, by the way, by the way, we don't need a lot of spiritual sheriffs at Atlanta West. Now the Bible says, you may all prophesy one by one and let the other judge. If there is a message in tongues and interpretation, there is a prophecy, we have a biblical responsibility to judge, not that person, but is that message aligned to the Word of God? That's what we judge. We're not going to say, well, that person's not perfect. How come they're used by God? The same reason you're used by God in your imperfection. The same reason God uses me in my imperfection. So we're not judging whether or not that person ought to be used by God. So there's a place for that. But we have a lot of spiritual people around here. By the way, wonderful men and women, but Sister Hernandez noted to me, the number of men in our church engaged in, in demonstrative worship, and prayer, and in the altar, because around here, I don't believe that it's all about me. I believe that men should leave their homes, and families should follow their husbands, and that everybody ought to get what I'm talking about tonight, because it's a spiritual principle. So here's what they wanted Moses to do. They wanted Moses to call El Dad and me Dad into his office. All right, boys. I've got a question for you. Who gave you those terrible rhyming names? <clears throat> That's my first question. Second, where were you at seven thirty? Where were you at nine o'clock? Where were you at eleven thirty? Where were you in church? Sorry, why were you not at the ten of meeting? the tabernacle, when the Spirit fell. And my next question is, who do you think you are to feel God at work? Who do you think you are to be filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesy at your house, out in the camp? We're not having any of this anymore. You boys, straighten up, get to church, do all your praying at church, and I'm God's man Sit, roll over, beg. That's what they thought, <laughs> that's what they thought Moses was going to do. Look at verse 29. Moses says to Joshua, paraphrase, are you upset for my sake? Envious thou for my sake? Here's, here's the pastor's dream. Would God that all The Lord's people were prophets. I wish all two million of these people were prophets. And that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. If you're upset for me, you're upset for the wrong person. This is a dream come true. I can't do this alone. I'm asking God to kill me. Now for the first time in my life, I have felt spiritual pressure lift off of me and be multiplied into these 70 men. I feel better than I've ever felt in my life. So don't complain about this. I wish everybody, all God's people were prophets. I want to tell you that that is this pastor's dream too. That everybody who is saved, is spiritual, is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not just a churchgoer, not just look at the screen when the the Scripture comes up there, but you are following Jesus Christ in your life every day that you pray and that you have a relationship in the Bible and that when you have promptings of the Spirit to do the right thing, you obey them, that you don't have to come to church just to get wound up every day so you can go to heaven. You're here to be strengthened and to fellowship and to serve so we can go out. And in case you're wondering, it is okay to prophesy and pray at work, at home, on the job, in the store, to be mightily used of God. The Bible does not say these signs shall follow them that are called to preach that have a title. It says these signs shall follow them that believe that every Holy Ghost filled person has anointing and power and authority. Amen. That was Joel's prophecy. It shall come to pass afterward, Joel 2.28, that I will pour out upon My Spirit upon all flesh. Now we, we understand that this means Acts chapter 2, when Peter says this is that that was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that I'm going to pour out My Spirit on everybody. But it is significant to them that it wasn't just prophets or priests or special people that God would use at specific times like a Samson or a Gideon or something like that. That He is actually going to put His Spirit inside of sons and daughters and old men and young men and on slaves, that was their day, servants and on handmaids. He is going to put His Spirit. He's going to pour it out on them and they're going to be supernaturally anointed by the Holy Ghost. What Moses wished for, God had in mind from the very beginning. And he promised it in Joel 2 and he did it in Acts 2. And this pastor's prayer and dream is that God would would pour His Spirit out. And and I'm just telling you because I believe that, you know, there's power to bind and loose and I'm not sure how wide those parameters are, but for what it's worth, as a pastor, I loose anointing and power and gifts and the Holy Ghost. I want it in our church. I don't want it locked up behind the pulpit. I want it to be set free in the congregation. Let's stand. Let's stand and let's praise the Lord right now. And why don't you receive it into your spirit right now in the name of Jesus Christ. Go ahead, lift up your heart to the Lord. Why don't you just open yourself up to be a receptacle, a recipient, of Holy Ghost power and anointing and strength. Hallelujah. 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 Go ahead, worship the Lord a little bit. Just open up to the Holy Ghost right now. Amen. Amen. Go ahead. Pursue this a little bit in your spirit. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. It is that power that wants to work through you right now. Hallelujah. 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 In Jesus name of oh God. I pray that you would multiply anointings. And that you would let the Holy Ghost. For you have on high and you gave gifts to men. Oh Lord God, you've given to every one of us a measure of faith. You've departed them severally as you will. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Orasando Yoraki Shadeyala. Ilomo Hallelujah. 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 Amen. Let me just say a couple of things and then it's our custom to gather at the altar, right? But I believe my best parenting is done when I am spiritual. My best relationship with my wife is when we're spiritual. Your best business decisions are made when you're spiritual. You get along with people better when you're spiritual. You're more successful on the job if you're a saint of God when you're spiritual. Obviously, resist temptation better when you're Spiritual. Amen. So it is God's plan, not my plan. It is God's plan to have a supernaturally gifted, anointed church of believers, regular people like you and me. Just regular people. Regular people that are spiritual people. But it will gather just for a few moments, and if you need to go, I always understand that. On Wednesday, Sunday, that may be a little different, but Wednesday, why don't you come if you can? Amen. I thank you, Lord. So, so, you know, from time to time, maybe somebody will get out of order, all right? We'll deal with that in the most discreet way possible to try not embarrass them or kind of make everybody nervous. Because my friend, Brother Jones, Jerry Jones, said that there are some churches that are mousy, They're so afraid they're going to do the wrong thing that they don't do anything. I don't want a mousy church where you're afraid you're going to be out of order so you're always like perfectly standing still doing nothing. When you step out on faith, maybe you're going to make a little mistake but you're not smoking and drinking and robbing banks. You're trying to be used of God. So we're going to have grace for that and do our best to coach and guide But the worst thing is churches that are filled with fear that because somebody's going to do the wrong thing, nobody has freedom to do anything. We believe that we should know those that labor among us. So we're careful about that, who we put in ministry, who wears a name tag and who's on staff. We're careful about that. That's not my message tonight, but I just want to assure you that we're not just, we haven't lost our mind But I hope we found the mind of Christ here. Amen? So why don't we thank the Lord. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells on the inside. I just want to internalize this message for just a few moments. Amen?